Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Leslie Manville is an actor. She got her start on TV back in the 70s. At the time, she was a teenager living in England. Then came her career in theater. She's been in many plays with the prestigious Royal Shakespeare Company. She's also been in many films. Mike Lee became a fan of her stage work. She's been in a ton of his movies since. And she was nominated for an Oscar for her role in Phantom Thread. It's been some 40 years since she got started in the entertainment business, so you might think it's time to slow it down a little. Maybe relax on a beach somewhere, right? in a Guardian interview recently, I kind of, in a rather extravagant way, said, I want to go out and dance till three in the morning and get drunk and drink too much and have sex, you know, which is kind of, people have taken a bit literally, but um, (laughs) I'm sort of making a point that, you know, just because you are over 50, it doesn't mean that those feelings stop and that you don't, you know, you don't want a good time, you don't want to misbehave. You know, some people think, oh, well, you're a 50-year-old woman. Should you really be dancing and getting sweaty and flirting? Hell yes, you should. And if you want to, you can do it. It's bullseye. You might know Leslie's work with the director Mike Lee. She starred in some of his best movies, like Secrets and Lies, All or Nothing, and Another Year. Her latest is the BBC show Mum. In it, she plays Kathy, a mom in her 50s, living out in the suburbs. The show begins with Kathy getting over the recent death of her husband. The tone of the show and Leslie's performance are both very grounded, though sometimes she is surrounded by madness. A lot of Mum is about Leslie's character's relationship with her best friend, Michael. They have palpable romantic chemistry, but Leslie's son, Jason, isn't into the idea. He's still pretty protective of his late father. And he gets a bit jealous when he notices there might be something going on between his mom and his dad's pal. In this clip, Kathy and Jason are chatting after a dinner party wraps up. Kathy maybe has had a few too many drinks. A little bit giggly, wasn't I? Just a bit. (laughs) And then I fell asleep. Oh, you were fast asleep on the sofa. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, actually, last night... The really funny thing was you, uh, you fell asleep on Michael. How do you mean? Well, we were watching the film and you fell asleep with your head on Michael's shoulder. <laughs> oh, did I? Yeah, not like you. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, everyone saw it. You think Michael would have moved or something? But he just sat there. Did he? Yeah. Weird. Leslie, I'm so happy to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming in and doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, One of the things that I enjoy the most about Mum is you and Peter Mullen, the protagonists of the show, both uh, radiate kindness and warmth. And it's a very muted, uh, quiet show for a sitcom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And everyone else is a monster. (laughs) <laughs> just <laughs> act like monsters yes yeah <laughs> yeah they do I think that was the point that you know they, you'd have this calm center to it with these people that the audience can really relate to and particularly with Kathy see the other people around her um, through 
through her eyes and their ridiculousness and their their characteristics, which sometimes are very challenging. <laughs> but yeah, there is it is this sweet sweet couple who are, have slowly over the three seasons that we've done fallen in love with each other, and uh, it's a very nice love story. Are you as patient as your character, Kathy, on Mum? Hell no. <laughs> I'm I'm far more judgmental than Kathy is. Yeah, no, I I find it hard to button my mouth. I really do, in all walks of my life. So, um, uh, I mean, there are a lot of similarities. You know, I I hope people think I'm kind and all of those things. But patient, no. You left general education in your like mid-teens, <clears throat> right? Fifteen <clears throat> or sixteen, something like that. Fifteen, yeah. Had you already then decided to be an actor? No, I was a very good classical singer, and since the age of about eight or nine, I I was trained classically, and I I really did have an exceptional voice, and I I think if I'd have done taken that course, which would have been a very natural course to take, I would have moved into opera easily. How did you figure out that that was the case when you were eight or nine years old? Was it like singing in church or something like that? Well, I did actually go to a church school, but it, yeah. And so I did sing in the choir and I did sing a lot of solos. My father had a very good voice, so there was always singing at home. And my middle sister sang as well. So there was a lot of singing going on. And, uh, when I went to have singing lessons, you know, the teachers that I had were getting me to sing more complicated stuff and Mozart. And so it it became apparent early on that I had this good voice. But, you know, I didn't grow up in um, a middle class household. We were working class. We weren't poor, but we were working class. My father did all sorts of jobs and my mother was uh, stayed at home and looked after the three of us. Um, but nobody really, well, nobody did take me to the opera. So I made a really ill-informed decision that it was boring, having not seen it ever, having never seen an opera in my life. I'm going to be frank with you. I worked at the San Francisco <clears throat> Opera when I was a teenager. I was 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. I don't think you would have found it not boring at the time. I can't promise you, well, based on my I, experience as a 16-year-old <laughs> at the opera. There must be a lot of six, 15, 16-year-olds that do see it and do want to go and study it because by the time them. they're 20, they're doing it. But, you know, <laughs> I no, I mean, for me, you know, it was... Um, it just wasn't rock and roll for me, you know, at all. <laughs> so I thought, well, look, I have got this good voice. I could use it. I could do musicals. So I sort of said to my mum and dad, look, I grew up in Brighton, which is on the south coast of England. I said, I really want to go to a stage school in London, which is a kind of odd place where you can you can go from four um, and you do general education in the morning and then singing, dancing, acting in the afternoon. Well, I left school at 15 to go to this stage school uh, with the idea that I would continue my education in the mornings, and I did. Um, but the education was not good, uh, so I didn't end up sitting any exams or doing any of the things that the friends I'd left behind in Brighton were doing. So I actually don't have a qualification to my name, so thank God I can act. But um, um, 
the singing and dancing and acting teaching was very good. And I learned to dance with a great choreographer called Arlene Phillips. Um, I was singing and I met a really good acting teacher who I'm still friends with now. And I was only there for about nine months or so. And then I left and my first job was a musical in the West End directed by John Schlesinger, the late film director who was making a very rare foray into a musical theatre. And then I did all sorts of odd odd jobs. I was presenting a bit. I was doing pantomime, which is a thing we have in England. It's a Christmas show. Um, I was doing a bit of acting here and there, but it was mostly musical stuff. I did a lunchtime soap for a while, which was really interesting learning curve because we shot most of it outside on on proper single camera film, which was quite rare for television. Anyway, that said, cut to six years later, and I had a very happy six years just bumbling around, doing lots of different jobs, enjoying myself, earning a bit of money. And then I met Mike Lee. And then it all kind of changed, really, because um, we just got on like a house on fire. And he made me see that I could play people that weren't like me. And that made me more happy than anything. And I loved the way he worked and the fact that, you know, to get to an end result of a script, we'd get to that point by many improvisations and creating characters and all of that. And I just loved it. And it made sense to me. I thought, yeah, if I'm going to play somebody real, I'd, I need to I need to create them from scratch and fill out all their background and all of this stuff. So it really, it really um, got into my bones, and working with him then at that very formative time, it was like uh, the first film I did with him was made for the BBC, and it was called Grown Ups. And when it went out, despite the fact I'd been acting for about six or seven years by then, it was like I was a new kid on the block because the kind of work I'd been doing before that nobody'd really noticed. But suddenly here I was with this prestigious director and doing this great film that was on um, on on the BBC. Um, and you know, after that, it it just. It, my career just got more and more interesting and went from strength to strength. It's It seems to me like a lot to do to like go off and do all that stuff on your own as a teenager. You know, particularly if you don't already have a lot of grounding in that world. I mean, having mm. grown up outside London in a non-show business family. Mm. I have a buddy that grew up in Sherman Oaks, California here. When I got to college and became my friend, his parents are screenwriters, and his his uh, neighbor was his, his neighbor as a child was uh, Brian Cranston. <laughs> and to him, working in show business is normal. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, he still does. He does now. But like, I went to an art school as a teenager. I I couldn't conceive that it could be a thing you did for your life like maybe I could kind of imagine regional theater mm. you know what I mean yeah I do well I mean when I went to stage school I I really just loved it I mean I was still living at home in Brighton and it's about a, an hour's commute on the train every day so I was traveling backwards and forwards but I loved it I felt I'd found my groove I mean I was quite shy. I mean, there were a lot of girls there that were very um, 
uh, jazz hands and right. loved performing and they were very big characters. And I wasn't any of those things. I, so, but I always was the quiet one, really. Um, but I suppose when I did feel, well, no, I know that when I did feel um, a bit lost and a bit alone was when I started working. And I wasn't working in London, which I was beginning to get to know. And I wasn't working near home in Brighton. I was all over the place, all over the country. And um, I, I was really quite alone then. And that was difficult. Um you know, 16 years old, fending for myself. There was a, sh a program I did in the southwest of England, uh, which was like a, a kids' show, but I was presenting it. So I'd film all these extracts during the week, you know, going to a zoo, talking to the zookeeper, and then we'd go into the studio once a week and we'd record the show live. I don't know if you have a comparison show here, but that was the nature of the show. It's kind of a magazine program for kids. And um, I loved doing the show, but nobody there looked after me at all. And, I, and, and in hindsight, it was shocking that nobody took care of me. And I was staying in a really not very nice hotel, um, which back in the, when was this then? This was the mid-late 70s. It was all a bit seedy. And it was full of traveling salesmen in terrible smelly suits and blokes and men who would look at me at breakfast and it was really not very comfortable and there were no mobile phones cell phones there was there were no TVs in the room I mean it was basic and I was lonely and finding places to eat on my own in the evenings when restaurants were not really a thing and certainly not 16 year old girls going out on their own to eat but you know I did it so I suppose I kind of it gave me backbone and it gave me an absolute sense of myself. And um, I think that it's it, it's it's been really good that I had all of that. I mean, it wasn't always great at the time, but it's it's kind of made me. You know, I, I don't I don't take any mess from anybody. And, and I know that those years of my life were really formative, you know, until I got in my mid-twenties and you know, got, got myself somewhere to live in London and got more settled, you know. Those early days of travelling around, so young and were, were hard. So what were the circumstances of you meeting the filmmaker Mike Lee with whom you've, you've worked so many times in the decades since? Well, the circumstances were quite, kind of odd. I was doing a play in London for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I wasn't doing Shakespeare because they don't just do Shakespeare. I was doing a, a new modern play. And Mike had been asked to go to the Royal Shakespeare and do a play. Uh, but for various reasons, he had to cast it, economic reasons, I guess, he had to cast it from within the current company. Um, and I don't think I was an obvious candidate. You know, I, I, as I said, prior to meeting him, I was kind of a one-trick pony. I read him describe what you had done to that point as playing nice ladies like yourself or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, he's absolutely right. That is that is the bottom line. I played, um, you know, sweet, nice-looking girls, squeaky clean, and that was me. Anyway, I, he asked me to do this play, and I don't think he thought I was going to be a great Mike Lee candidate, really. I think he thought it was going to be a bit hard work with me. But once we started doing it, 
as I said just now, I just thought this was amazing and I loved it and I was good at it. And he was the first person after being an actor for about seven years by that point. He said to me, you're really very good at this. And the sense of achievement that I had and the thrill of him saying that to me was um, was uh, huge. So uh, the play actually, for reasons which we don't need to waste time talking about now, actually never happened. So um, he said, well, look, I think you better come and work with me again. And, and then we did uh, in the days when he was mostly making films for the BBC and Channel 4. We made Grown Ups. Before we come back, in a minute, Leslie and I talk about her work in Mike Lee's Another Year. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smart Water. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate. Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water. That's pretty smart. To restore your faith in humanity, get the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Uninterrupted conversations between real people about the things that matter most. This season, we're hearing from LGBTQ voices and what life was like before Stonewall. From lesser-known victories to conversations across generations. Listen to all 12 episodes now. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the great Leslie Manville. You might know her from many of director Mike Lee's movies. She stars as Kathy in the TV show Mum. The third and final series of episodes is out now on the BBC and on their streaming service, BritBox. Now, he is very well known for his unusual method of making films and theater, um, which often involves developing uh, characters and a story with the <clears throat> cast um, mm -hmm. through, in part, improvisation. Mm -hmm. Had you improvised before you started working with him? Only at, um, only at stage school a little bit, um, but not really, not extensively. And it was never to do with it coming out of a character that you'd created. I mean, when you work with Mike, you don't just kind of day one start improvising. I mean... You spend many weeks creating a character that you're just talking about and chewing over with each, you know, each one to one. 
and then you start improvising and even then it's on your own you you know you don't start suddenly improvising with people so i you know with him i kind of realized that of course i always used to find improvising without mike um it's a bit of a waste of time because and subsequent people that i worked with after having worked done a few jobs with Mike used to think oh you're good at improvising come on let's try and make this scripted play that doesn't work very well at this point let's improvise it and see what and of course it's nonsense because all you're doing is thinking what to say so nothing can be trusted nothing's all coming from an organic place you're just trying to think of what to say and of course with him with Mike what's imperative is that you thoroughly and wholly create these characters and then very slowly i mean you'll just you know a whole day just walking around as them not saying anything then you might just potter you know you have mock-ups of wherever they live or where they work and you slowly 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 start to bring them to life and eventually there'll be other characters in the piece that he'll bring you together with that you might be related to or having a friendship or marriage with whatever and you fill out all of that backstory and then you'll start to do some improvisations which but there's never any pressure in fact it's absolutely crucial that you don't try and make the improvisations interesting because then he's not going to you're not going to discover anything and and I've done very long improvisations with him um when not a lot happens but you but through those he starts to see where tensions are where where relationships um are, are floundering or where a relationship is good you know I've done 4 5 6 hour improvisations where you might just an hour of that might be spent with your characters sitting watching TV and not saying anything that's terrifying to me yeah yeah but you haven't done the work that precedes it to get you to the place where well, you're you being actually presumptive feel but in this case you're comfortable. right <laughs> but you know it, but that's but but that of course if somebody said to me tomorrow okay we're going to do this piece and you're going to be there so let's start improvising i'd be terrified because what that is what I was saying just now. All you're doing is thinking of what to say. Whereas if there's no pressure of being to be entertaining, it, it kind of takes care of itself because of the work you've done. I want to play a scene from a Mike Lee movie uh, in which you start. And I'm going to be honest, we've only got a certain amount of time here. I could just play clips of your performances in Mike Lee movies for the rest of the time we're here, I would be happy about that. I'd be perfectly glad to just sit here and enjoy your performances in Mike Lee movies. But I, we picked one called uh, Another Year that came out mm. about a decade ago. Yes. And I was walking back to my car after having eaten lunch today. And I was thinking to myself, and this is, you know, don't ask me to defend it, but I do sincerely believe it. I was thinking to myself, I don't know that I have ever seen a more, I can't even meet your gaze while I say this, but it's the <laughs> honest truth. I don't know that I've ever seen a more compelling acting performance in a film than your performance in this film. Well, thank you very much. Um, which I, I found just to be a, a breathtaking movie. So in this movie, basically, there is this uh, couple named... Tom and Jerry, who are uh, in like late middle age, um, and one of Jerry's co-workers is Mary, who who you play, mm. 
and she is spending time with them and trying to put up a facade of, you know, of bonhomie. Mm. Um, but it is very... It, it is very clear as the film unfolds that she is just desperately sad and lonely and mm. um, probably an alcoholic. Oh, definitely, yeah. And um, so I, I just want to play this scene from the movie. So this is uh, this is my guest, as Mary, talking about her taste in men over a glass of wine with <laughs> Jerry. And Mary says that she's never dated a man who would cook for her. You could put an ad in the paper. <laughs> Chef wanted. Yeah, Chef stroke boyfriend required for gorgeous girl. No, mature woman with cat. <laughs> no, mature-ish. We don't want to put them off, do we? <laughs> oh, it's really lovely the way you and Tom do everything together. We're very lucky. Yeah, you are. But you deserve it. You're both such lovely people. Oh, oops. Me halo <laughs> Yeah, St. <Saint> Jerry. <laughs> No, but I'm really comfortable with where I am in my life. As you know, I've got my lovely little garden flat. I've got a good job. I've got my health, touch wood. I've got my independence. I haven't got anybody telling me what to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not all rosy. I have good days and bad days like everyone else, don't I? But hey. (laughs) It is. um, I think it would be very easy for your performance or the film to just let her be pathetic or just let her be a joke and it's a funny movie too mm, yeah and i and it doesn't and i wonder what it was like to spend all that time developing and then embodying a character who is in some ways just defined by just crippling loneliness yeah it it was um i I've, it's I think that film um, stayed with me. I don't mean on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I didn't go home and um, cry into my pillow because I was playing Mary. But that woman stayed with me, her predicament, her her pain. That, because so many people said to me uh, when they'd seen the film that they'd been like that at times in their life or they knew people that were like that or people that were like that and were still like that and um and i i sort of think that for me she was um the most complete piece of work that i did with mike really um when we were doing um what became big in what big parts of the film like for example the scene when she arrives late to their barbecue We've saved you some food, Mary. I hope it's still warm. Oh, thanks, Jerry. Oh, yeah, be fine. Please, some fresh if you like. Oh, no, Tom, don't worry about me. So you didn't get arrested then, Mary? No, I didn't, Joe. He was very kind to me, actually. What CC is your car? What do you mean? How big's the engine? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's about this big, I think. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? Don't be cruel. It means how powerful is it, Mary? How many cubic centimetres is it? Oh. You should know that. Oh, on the back, there's numbers like 1.6 or 1.9. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, well, that's boy stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's not important. <laughs> no, Tanya. I think I'm going to have a cigarette before I eat this. Excuse me, I'll get out of your way. Shall we take Isaac over there? OK. Oh, well, I, I thought you wouldn't mind because we're outside. No, we don't, Mary. You carry on. You're all right. You're all right. 
mean, we did that as a major improvisation that lasted the best part of the day, really. Um, so, you know, f- for Mary, it would start in her flat, getting ready, you know, all of that. And I remember, I remember this very well, and I don't remember lots of things, but this I remember very well. That she, Mary used to listen to a lot of sad, dusty Springfield, and she used to sing along to it quite well, which was good because, you know, I'm, I, I've got a bit of a voice on me. And I thought, actually, I'm going to use it. Mary can have quite a good voice. It's, and she's belting out this. And she, she sort of loved the loneliness in a perverse way. You know, she, she loved singing the Dusty Springfield and, have, and crying and using that as an excuse to go and get another glass of wine and even though she knew she had to drive across London because then she arrives in this car that she's got and the car is, a, you know, everything's chaos with her, chaos. Nothing is ordered and, and that's really not like me. I, I, I'd never played somebody drunk before um, and we did a few scenes where she was, she was drunk and that, oddly enough, it was the only time and I'd shared this with Mike, I said the really... Thing I'm finding really tricky is that uh, normally, you know, you do the scene, you come out of character, you go and have your lunch and you come back and you do it again, whatever. But when I was doing the drunk Mary, I, I sort of needed to stay in that zone. I found going in and out of drunk very tricky. So um, he said, that's all right, you know, just we'll find a little place for you to go and keep it, keep it on the go. And I did. And it, and it really helped. But there was a lot about playing her and and I think over the years some people have misinterpreted this that it meant that you know I was lonely or I was um, you know in some sort of pain and we've all been in pain in our lives and lonely at times but I I really knew how to play her I brought a lot to those scenes when she was desperate and and it kind of was an extension. It was like going to places beyond where I, Leslie, had been. But I knew the route. So, yeah, I, I, if, if, if I had a... We have a show in England called Desert Island Discs, you might be familiar with. My Desert Island Disc, my, move, my movies would be Mary. Because <laughs> there's something so wonderful about her as well that, that she isn't just totally pitiful and she puts on a she wants to she wants to present something to the world that is positive you know she hasn't completely thrown in the towel she clings to she's going to claw herself back up you know or try to and she's beloved too i mean like that's that's Mm. another thing about the film is that she wouldn't be there even in that state if those friends didn't love her yes i mean they do they do eventually get rather irritated because she's interrupting the the kind of order and family stability of their life you know here's this tornado that come turns up on a sunday um and and behaves quite badly at times especially towards their son and his his new girlfriend you know one of the themes that that movie shares with mum is kind of engaging with the question of 
what are the possibilities and lack of possibilities of late middle age? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that, uh, another year feels like this this story of contrasts of people, these people who are engaging that part of their lives in very different ways. Mm. You know, mom is about someone who is, who has both like learned to be generous with everyone around her and is also um, be, being generous with herself about starting a new thing, having lost her husband. Mm-hmm. And another year feels like a really deep, least felt to me when I watched it, like a very deep engagement of the tragedy of mm. late middle age, which is that you don't always get to make a new choice. You don't always get to open up a new road. No, no. I mean, obviously, Mary in another year was about 10 years ago, so I was 10 years younger. So it, there was something more desperate about Mary. Um, and you're right, those comparisons are absolutely spot on. But she was, you know, the, the ship had sailed to have a child. And she was just an un, a different personality. You know, she she desperately wanted to cling on to her youth and her looks. And, you know, she dressed... Some would say, some would not, but she she probably dressed a bit inappropriately for her age and she wasn't very sophisticated. She wasn't embracing um, getting older and she which she she could have done, you know, she was she was not a bad looking woman. She was just desperately clinging on and really totally um, misjudging the situation with her friend's son, who she seriously thought she could get into some kind of relationship and that he would, he would find her attractive and want to be with her. And it's not that she wasn't attractive, but it was that there was no way this stable young man was going to be attracted by this totally chaotic, alcoholic, desperate woman. And what's different about Kathy and mum is that she has had a full and fulfilled life. She she was married to a man who she had a good relationship with. She had love. She's had a child. She does um, a nice job. She works in children's school. You know, it's all gentle, positive things. Um, So her re-evaluation of her life post the death of her husband um, is, is a very different scenario but what I love about mum and what's I think one of the reasons why it's been received so enthusiastically and brilliantly certainly in the UK uh, thus far is that it it looks at people over 50 over 60 who are just forming a love affair you know they're they're that part of their lives is not shut off and done with and it's, I, I think a lot of women are very happy to see something like that portrayed, that they feel they're being represented. And also that, you know, as I've said in the press before, in a slightly exaggerated way, because I'm trying to make a point, you know, in a Guardian interview recently, I kind of, in a rather extravagant way, said, I want to go out and dance till three in the morning and get drunk and drink too much and have sex. You know, which is kind of, people have taken a bit literally. But um, <laughs> I'm sort of making a point that, you know, just because you are over 50, it doesn't mean that those feelings stop and that you don't, you know, you don't want a good time. You don't want to misbehave. 
you know, some people think, oh, well, you're a 50-year-old woman. Should you really be dancing and getting sweaty and flirting? Hell yes, you should. And if you want to, you can do it. Uh, I mean, Kathy's not like that, obviously. She's much more well-behaved <laughs> and she wouldn't, um, she wouldn't even think that she would go out and uh, get drunk. She'd probably stay at home and get drunk, but she might not want to go dancing like I do. But it's just, you know what I'm saying. I'm just, isn't it great that... Um, like Fleabag is about a woman of very different generation, but who's who's the great thing about that show is that she doesn't care, you know, that, that anything goes, and that and that the show has shown a woman of that age not caring. Um, it's just breaking some gla- glass ceilings, really. Well, Leslie Manville, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. It's so, so great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It's been really nice talking to you, too. Leslie Manville, everyone. She stars as Kathy on Mum, which you can watch on BritBox here in the United States. And if you haven't seen Another Year by Mike Lee, uh, it's one of my favorite films and uh, truly exceptional and extraordinary performance by Leslie Manville. Of course, she is, as they say, good in everything. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week it drizzled for 10 glorious seconds before the 90-degree weather started up again. It was a nice 10 seconds, though. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's taking care of a baby, so Ragu Manavalin stepped in for him this week. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien here in the office, and our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Hey, Dan, I interviewed E40. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that. They're good folks. And before you go, there are decades of Bullseye episodes for you to listen to in our archives. If you're a fan of hip-hop veterans, for example, why not check out uh, my conversation with Masta Ace? Um, Check out my interview with Big Boy from Outkast. How about that? Lots of great hip-hop in the Bullseye archives. You can find our archives at MaximumFun.org, which is our website. You can also find them in your podcast app. Just subscribe to Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and, you know, scroll backwards. Uh, You can also find the last few years' worth of shows on YouTube in the Bullseye with Jesse Thorne channel. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.